Good to see you. You can take a seat if you're standing still. You got a little extra sleep this morning, unless you're the parents of small children, in which case you got less sleep. So sorry about that. I do. How many of you hate daylight savings? I get jet lagged from it. It's going to take me a full six months to recover. It's terrible. Last night at 7.30, I was falling asleep going, oh, God, no, we can't sleep now. I'll wake up at 3 in the morning. But here we are, rolling with the punches. Good to see you all this morning. If this is your first time with us, uh, my name is Andrew. I'm the lead pastor here. New Life East is one of eight congregations of New Life Church spread out across Colorado Springs. Uh, We follow Jesus together by worshiping together, connecting with one another, serving in the church and across the city. And uh, it's a joy to have you in our house. We are putting on a gathering in a couple weeks here, not this coming Wednesday night, but the Wednesday night after, called New Life Next, which we do about four times a year here. And New Life Next is really an opportunity for you to hear more about who we are and what we're about, what our theology is, what our values are. And it's really very focused on values. And then how we live those things out together and I'll tell you, we actually set, um, we set our New Life Next up. All the congregations do a New Life Next. But we set ours up uh, to be something like, um, what does it mean to belong to the church 101? What we have found is that we're living in a very chaotic time where there are lots of ideas uh, about belonging to a local church. Some are less helpful than others. And so we thought it would be good to create a space where we just meditated together biblically and theologically on what does it mean to, what is the local church? What does it mean to belong to the local church? And then how do we do that together? So I said, if you're newer, newer, but it might be that you've been to new, you've been at New Life East for a long time, but you would like some perspective and some clarity on that. We would love to have you come to it. um, Like I said, not this coming Wednesday, but the Wednesday after from about 6.30 till eight o'clock, we'll serve you some dinner. Uh, I'll do some teaching. We'll have a bunch of discussion and uh, just a great time to meditate a little bit more deeply on being part of the church. So sign up. For that, we're in the book of 1 Timothy. I'll invite you to open your Bibles and turn there. Uh, We were out of town last weekend. Pastor Rory covered 1 Timothy chapter 3. And as we've seen, give it up for Rory Green. Yeah, there it is. Uh, 1 Timothy, as we've seen, this is, man, you got a lot of love in the house this morning. As we've seen, 1 Timothy is this letter. uh, It's one of the pastoral epistles. We call it 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Uh, Paul is writing to his young protégés, Timothy and Titus, helping them remember just what it looks like to regulate life in the household of God. And so it's not high-flying theology in these letters. It's more like practical stuff. What does it mean to be the people of God? And so we've seen Paul address what it means to belong to the family of God. We've seen him talk some about what the purpose of the Scriptures is. Uh, That was in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, We've seen him talk about corporate worship when we gather together. How do we regulate what happens in corporate worship so that it's decent and in order so that it reflects the great concerns of God for the world? We've seen Paul talk also about church leadership. That was last weekend. So elders and deacons, what's the standard that we need to hold our leaders to? And why is it that we hold our leaders to that standard? In some ways, that's really a reflection of what God calls the whole church to. And so lots of practical matters. And here in 1 Timothy chapter 4, we're turning our attention now to a misunderstanding that was going on in the community of faith. And it was a misunderstanding that had a great deal uh, to do with bodily life. One of the questions that Christianity, I think, answers and answers in a very compelling and specific way is just what is the value of the body? Is the body 
something that has nothing to do or very little to do with our faith? Or is the body more central to our faith? And I think that what we'll discover in these verses is that the body is actually a central locus of how we connect with God and how we live out our communion with God. So 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. If you're there, say, I'm there. That's very good. Great job, class. The scripture says that the Spirit clearly says that in the latter times, some will abandon the faith. The Greek word there is apostatize. That's where we get apostasy from. So we're talking about something now that is a great falling away from the truth of faith. So watch what follows here. Some will abandon the faith and they'll follow deceiving spirits and the things taught by demons. The old uh, versions of the Bible said the doctrines of demons. So whatever is going on here is a very, very serious distortion of faith. And watch what he says. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. What are they doing? Well, they're forbidding people to marry, number one. And they're ordering them to abstain from certain foods with God, which God created to be received. Everybody say received with received with thanksgiving received with thanksgiving i want you to hang on to that thought by those who believe and who know the truth for everything that god created everybody say everything it's good and nothing is to be rejected if it is with thanksgiving because it's been consecrated by the word of god and prayer and now if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters you'll be a good minister of christ jesus nourished on the truths of the faith and on the good teaching that you've followed have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales, but rather train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise both for the present life and for the life to come. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. And so, Lord, we receive these words as from your hand this morning. Paul says elsewhere that all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful. For teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we pray that these words this morning, that they would do that. That they would remind us of what is true, that they would correct error in us, and that they'd lead us more deeply into the goodwill of God for human life. So come, great teacher, Jesus the Lord, be present among us by the power of your spirit. Peel these scriptures apart and minister them to us in a way that builds us up and makes us strong, makes us more fully uh, your people. Grant it, we pray. We say, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. And so Paul says, in the latter times, people are going to abandon the faith, follow deceiving spirits and the doctrines of demons. And then when he goes goes on to lay out just what those doctrines of demons are, he really, they cluster kind of in two arenas. Number one, there seems to be a kind of denigration of marriage, right? So they forbid people to marry, number one. So anything to do with sexuality is sort of seen as you don't want to touch that. That's dirty. That's unclean. Let's stay away from that. And uh, yes, you know, it's good marriage, we suppose, for the propagation of the species. But, (laughs) you know, all things considered, that's dangerous enough that we ought to leave it alone, right? So One is anything to do with our sexuality, marriage. The other are things to do with dietary restrictions. And as we know, Jewish people had lots of dietary restrictions. And so there was kind of an atmosphere of suspicion for certain kinds of foods. Now, what Paul doesn't tell us is exactly who these false teachers are. So this has been the subject of a great deal of speculation down through the centuries. Who just are these folks? And as we know, if you've studied anything about first century uh, biblical context... 
uh, the biblical world of the time that um, these scriptures were written, uh, was really permeated by something called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was basically a system of thought that said that anything to do with material existence was bad. And that if you wanted to be a saved person, if you wanted to be an enlightened person, you left behind all of this so that one day you could kind of escape the limitations of the body and go be with the deity up in the clouds somewhere. So it could be that it's Gnosticism that's driving this along, or it could be some super-duper Christians that just have some bad ideas about how to live out their faith. Some scholars have actually suggested that what's going on here is you have people that are trying to return the church and return people to a sort of pre, um, pre-fall state. So like before there was marriage and before human beings ate meat, when they only ate vegetables and all of that, well, when God finally restores everything, it'll be a return to that kind of state. So how do we get ourselves ready for that? Well, we reject marriage now, and we also reject eating meat now. We just eat vegetables, and that's how we become pure for the life of the age to come, okay? So, but whatever the source of the errors, what we know was that it was a wrong appropriation or a wrong imagination around bodily life. Anything to do with our sexuality and lots of restrictions around our food. So what does Paul do? How does he counter that? Well, this is the first thing that he does, is he reasserts the God-given goodness. Everybody say goodness. The God-given goodness of the created order. The scriptures from beginning to end tell a story that situate us in this created order and help us understand that it's good. Think about the way that our scriptures open. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God, what? The heavens and the earth, right? And what we see God doing as the creation epic unfolds, every stage of the process really is punctuated with God looking out at what he has made And the scripture will always say that he saw that it was, it was good. And when he gets to the end of the process, he says that it's not just good, but it's, you might remember, it's it's very good. You get the impression that God has not made this world that we live in haphazardly, but he made it in love and he made it with great care. And more than that, he actually made it to be a place that he would move into with us. Think about Genesis chapter 3, after the first human beings sin and they run from God. The scripture says that they heard the sound of the Lord God. Do you remember the text? As he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It's like God. And it boggles our imaginations. We don't really know how immaterial spirit could do this. But God apparently was enjoying a stroll through this garden. And that beautiful, cool breeze, right? He was soaking it all in. And then he asks them, where are you guys? What are you doing? Why are you running from me? Why are you hiding? Why is that? Because what God wants is he wants connection with them. Where? Not somewhere else, but where? Here. And the whole way that the scriptural story unfolds, God says consistently throughout the Old Testament text, I will be their God and they will be my people and I will live with them and I'll walk among them. What God is looking for from us is fellowship with us in the space of our lives that he's given to us. And all of that comes, by the way, to a completion in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. The scripture says that the word, second person of the Trinity, became flesh. And what did he do? Made a dwelling among us. Somehow, deity has been united with, not just in proximity to, but deity has been united with our humanity such that the way that we access God in the second person of the Trinity is precisely via his fleshiness. 
He was formed in the womb of a woman. He went through the process of being born, the messy process of being born into the, into the world. He was raised as an adolescent and he lived and worked in first century Palestine. His miracles were miracles that were so bodily. Think about all the times in the Gospels that people would come to Jesus and their eyes are blind and he'd spit in the ground and make mud out of that dirt and he'd pack it into their eyes and tell them to wash. And a miracle happens how? Through spit and mud. And that's how committed God is to the conditions of our creatureliness. And that's a great scandal to a lot of systems of thought. It was a scandal to Gnosticism. It was a scandal actually even to Jewish thought. They couldn't fathom it. They couldn't fathom a Messiah that was in the flesh. They couldn't fathom a God who had taken on a body and hung for us and for our salvation on a Roman cross. Much less a God that raised from the, is raised from the dead in this... In this <laughs> God has taken up residence in a body with us, which says something to us about our bodily life. And so Paul, as he's seeing this distortion of teaching in the Ephesian church, he says, look, these people forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be what? Received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth for everything. Everybody say everything. All the stuff, everything God created is good and nothing's to be rejected if it's with Why is that? Because it's been consecrated. It's been rendered holy by the word of God and prayer. I want to say this to you this morning. Put the next slide up on the screen. That Christianity doesn't take us out of our bodily lives, but it gives us back our bodily lives as places of communion with the living God. Where does God intend to have fellowship with us? inside the conditions of our lives. Each one of them is calibrated for communion with God. And it doesn't matter how amazing your life or how unamazing your life is, all lives are calibrated for communion with God. That is how God has set things up. And it takes the eyes of faith to see it. That's part, I think, by the way, of what faith is. Faith is just an opening up of our eyes so that we see the glory of God inside the conditions of our existence. Last weekend, Mandy and I were out of town. Like I mentioned earlier, we have a friend who's got a house uh, up just past Divide, Colorado. It's about an hour from here. And he let us, let us use it for the weekend a couple times a year. Her and I try to get away just for an extended break, three or four days without children. I love my kids, but being apart from my kids for a few days, hallelujah, amen. And so we jumped in the car on Thursday night about a week and a half ago. And you remember the snow was falling. And winter is a terrible season from the pit of hell. But God's redeemed it in some ways. And, you know, it was magical. And so the snow was falling, you know, and we got up there late and crashed into bed. And we woke up the next morning and I moseyed on out of the bedroom and it was still dark. And my friend's house, such a beautiful house. And he's got this like picture window, like patio window that looks over the back of Pike's Peak. And so I got up early and uh, he's got a little fireplace there, and it's, uh, it's a fireplace from the future. So you, don't, you press a button is what you do, and the fire happens. And so the fire starts burning in the fireplace, and then I went over into the kitchen, and I made myself a cup of coffee, and it was very cold in the house, and so I grabbed some blankets and the coffee, and I sat down on the couch, and I just waited, looking at the mountains. Quiet, dark, beautiful. And as the time passed, all of a sudden... I saw that little orange ribbon 
right on the top of the mountains and I felt expectation, you know, welling up in my heart because I really do love a good sunrise. And so I sat there and it started to get brighter and brighter. And I started just really hoping that my bride would wander out and enjoy it with me. And sure enough, about five minutes before the sun broke, she came on out. And I said, babe, good morning. Come on over here. And she came over and I wrapped a blanket around her. And then she, she was, I need my coffee too. So she ran and she made herself a cup of coffee and she comes back. You know, we're sitting on the couch together as the sun is breaking over the mountains and we're just enjoying that together. And we watch the sun come all the way up with very little conversation, just enjoyment. And then we got ourselves cleaned up and we went into town. We went into Woodland Park and uh, we were on the hunt for donuts. You can't have them all the time, but every once in a while, a good donut is a good thing. And so we walked into, uh, have you been to the donut mill up in Woodland Park? Yeah, at donuts, donuts, the size of your face, even bigger. And so we were on the hunt for some big donuts, you know, and we go in there and we walked into that little shop and it's a very cute little shop. And yeah, and we're looking at all the different donuts and we picked out a couple and the kid behind the register, he looked at me and he said, sir. And I said, what? Then he said, has anybody ever told you that you look like Joel McHale, famous actor? And I said, no, but you're going to do great things in life, kid. And We sat down at a table together with our donuts and with our coffee and we talked about everything and we talked about nothing and the sun was streaming in that window and I sat there and I swear to you, it was an experience of the presence of God, God's presence, gratitude and thanksgiving and joy and I've been in church all of my life and I've been in really powerful worship services and I've been in my own life, I've cultivated the discipline of prayer for many, many years. And I've had very, very many experiences of prayer where it just felt like the windows of heaven opened up and God's presence streamed in. But the presence of God that I experienced in that moment was as, well, was as profound as anything I've experienced in a worship service. And what are we doing? We're eating donuts <laughs> and drinking coffee and we're sharing fellowship with one another. And I want to say to you this morning that any spirituality that can't make sense of that moment and claim that moment as a place of encounter with the living God is a sub-Christian spirituality. It's a sub-Christian spirituality. The whole point of our faith is that God's trying to give us back our lives so that we experience them as places of communion with God. By the way, twice in this text, it says that everything that God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is with Thanksgiving. Do you know what that Greek word for Thanksgiving is? It's Eucharist. So in the same way that when we gather here for worship and we take bread and we take cup and it seems so ordinary and so nothing, these little Trader Joe's gluten-free something or others. And we offer them up to God. Here it is, oh God. Here it is, bread from the earth and the fruit of the vine. Would you take it, O oh God? And what does God do? God fills it with his presence and he blesses it and he gives it back to us. And what happens? We experience God. We're brought into union with God. What Paul is saying is that all of our lives can be that. That we can experience our marriages as that. God, here it is. And God goes, here it is. 
that we can experience that with all of the food that we eat and the stuff that we drink. God, here it is. And God goes, here it is. And it's communion with God. With our children, we say, God, here they are. And God goes, here they are. And we experience them as communion with God. Friends, this is the point of our spirituality. It's not about us being taken out of our lives, but it's about us being given our lives and put back in our lives. Do you know that at the end of all things, the end of the story is not us being snatched out of our bodies, but what is it? The scripture says, behold, I saw new heavens, got a new earth, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. God's trying to situate us in our lives and to experience those lives. This place, our bodily lives, is places of communion with God. St. Augustine, in his classic text, The City of God, a great meditation on God's great plan through history, has a long section at the end where he meditates on the end of all things. And he says that at the end of all things, two great things happen. Number one, this physical world that we live in is healed of all of the distortions that sin has brought about. So part of the reason that it's complicated for us to try to experience God is because there's so many things in life that are hard and complicated and bad. And Augustine says, so at the end of all things, what happens? Well, God puts everything back together again. All the distortions wrought by sin are taken away. He says, but the second great thing that happens is that our spiritual eyes are healed. See, the scripture says that nobody has seen God and nobody can see God. Even at the end of all things, you know, we celebrate that at the end of all things, we'll see God, but you can't see God physically, not in this life or in the life to come. Why is that? Because God's pure spirit, but we can perceive him with our spiritual eyes. And so Augustine says that the redeemed, what happens when they're finally and fully redeemed is that the eyes of their hearts are completely enlightened so that they're not seeing God as like some white guy with a long beard sitting on a cloud because that's not what God is. But they see God as the one in whom they live and move and have their being. And all of a sudden, they've been like trained, healed by grace to receive everything as a gift from God. They see God in the movement of bodies all around them. Friends, that's the dream of God. And I hear people say sometimes, you know, they'll talk badly about the lives that they've been given. And they'll go, but you know, it'll be so amazing, Pastor. It'll be so amazing when we get to the hereafter because then we'll really have an experience of God. And do you know what I think? I think that if you complain about the life that you've been given here and you refuse to submit that complaining spirit to the sanctifying work of the spirit, you're never going to enjoy eternity. You'll get there and you'll start complaining about that too. You'll find a way to make a hell of heaven. But the redeemed heart can actually find a way to make a heaven of hell. Oh, look at all this. God is here. And somehow it changes your experience of it. What I'm saying to you is that you have to begin to practice living this way now. What does Paul say? He says that physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise both for what? And what else? That's right. When we train ourselves in godliness, it not only reshapes our experience of the present, but it actually positions us to receive the future that God gives in the right way. And so what that means then is that you have to approach your life in a different way. And all of the stuff of your life, all the conditions of your life, all of those conditions are occasions for holiness if you'll open your heart and receive them. I remember, I'll give you an example. I remember when our kids were real little, like babies. And that is, you young parents in the room, 
God bless you. This is the most physically strenuous part of your parenting is happening right now when your kids are babies. It gets psychologically strenuous when they're teenagers, but it's physically strenuous right now for you. And when they were little, little, and we had tiny babies, and I, I just remember Mandy was so sweet. She would, for the most part, get up with the little ones in the middle of the night because I had to work. But there were just nights when it just got to be too much, you know. And so she'd roll over at 2 in the morning and she'd go, you know, Bella, whoever would be crying again. And she'd go, honey, can you go do it? Can you go take care of Bella? And I'd go, sure. And you'd roll out of bed and everything in you is going, why did we have children? And I'd sense the arrest of the spirit on my heart. Andrew, don't waste the moments, you big dummy. <laughs> so wander downstairs, I take the little bottle, a couple scoops of formula, and some water, and mix it up, and put it on the stove or whatever, even microwave, warm it up. And I'm still, you know, a little bit. <clears throat> and I pull that little body out of the crib and sit down in the rocking chair and pull that body close and start feeding the baby, rocking back and forth. And I always knew that if I got my heart right, and it was a fight to get it right, but if I got my heart right, all of a sudden something would switch. And so I'd be feeding those little babies and all of a sudden I'd begin praying over them. God, thank you, thank you, thank you for little Bella. Thank you for all of the joy that she's brought into our lives. I'm looking at her. She's sucking on that bottle, you know. All the days of her life, oh God, please go with her. God, sojourn with her to the very end of time. God, be with her. God, be her God. God, the scripture says that all our children will be taught by the Lord and great will be their peace and undisturbed composure. So please teach Bella your ways. And then she finished up the bottle. I take the bottle out of her mouth and I put her up on my shoulder and do that. She belched a few times, you know. And then I pull her little fuzzy head close, you know, to my cheek. And I start whispering in her ear. I say, Bella, your mommy and daddy love you. I know that you don't know what that means because you can't understand words yet. But somehow in your deep subconscious, I'm praying that the Lord would write your belovedness on your heart. And in these moments, I pray even now that you begin to know the Lord. And I, it's Thanksgiving. What is it? It's Eucharist. It's Eucharist. Because everything that God created is, it's good. And nothing is to be rejected if it's received with Thanksgiving. Because what happens? It's consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Your lives are fitting habitations for the glory of God. And part of the reason that we come to worship here is just to remember that. <laughs> we're not, when we gather for worship, we're not trying to take ourselves out of our lives and we're not trying to cast dispersion on the lives that, lives that we've been given. But somehow Paul says, uh, in view of the mercies of God, what are you going to do? But you offer your whole bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. That's what we do, friends. We come together here in the presence of God is that we're bringing everything before the Lord. And we're saying, God, you gave me this. You gave me this marriage or you gave me my singleness. You gave me these children. You gave me my job. 
You gave me my love. You gave me my passion. You gave me my personality. It's all a gift from you. Here it is, oh God. And what does God do? He lays his hands upon it. He blesses it. And he gives it back to us. And we find ourselves tipping over into communion with God. The dignity of our lives is restored. Friends, that's why we come. Can we stand to our feet this morning? Friends, I want you to do something this morning. Paul tells us to examine ourselves before we come to the table. And I want you right now, Paul says, everything that God created is good. All the conditions of our lives, they are fitting habitations for God to dwell. And I suspect that God has been wanting to break through into some of your lives He's been wanting to break through into your experience, but he's not been able to because you've been holding him at arm's length. In some relationships or some experience, maybe it's in your job. (laughs) Maybe it's in your marriage, some portion of your marriage you're just so frustrated about. I don't know what it is, but I just saw you like holding some of your life at arm's length. And I think what you need to do instead of giving your, nothing is to be rejected. Instead of giving that thing a stiff arm, I think what you need to do is you need to Well, you need to receive it as a gift from the hand of God and then begin to consecrate yourself and it with the word of God in prayer. And so, Lord, here it is, our whole lives, everything that we have. Our marriage, our singleness, our children, our lack thereof, our loves, our passions, our desires, our jobs, our homes, our neighborhoods, the neighbors that annoy us so. (laughs) Nothing is to be rejected If it's received with thanksgiving, it's consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Would you help us, Lord? Would you help us be holy in our approach to our lives? Which means that we carry a sanctifying presence into every place that we live and move and have our being. So, Lord, we yield it all up to you. Offer your bodies, churches, living sacrifices. Offer your life as a gift unto God. And I promise you a miracle will happen. God will give it back to you. And so here it is, Lord, all that we have and all that we are, including this moment, where we gather up bread and cup before you. And we remember that on the night that you were betrayed, Lord Jesus, what you did is you took bread and you broke it and you gave it to your disciples. And you said, take this, all of you, and eat. This is my body. It's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, you took the cup, Jesus, saying, drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do it whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So here it is, Lord Jesus, bread and cup. By themselves, that's all they are. But if you'd fill them with your spirit and fill us with your spirit, well, we just might find ourselves experiencing God. So come. We pray that you take these elements, the bread and the cup, fill them with the mystery, oh God, and the magnitude of your presence that they would become for us a real participation in the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant it, we're praying. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, I'm gonna invite you to come forward and receive communion in just a moment. I'll invite our servers to come forward to serve communion stations. There will be four of them up front here. You'll exit your row to the right, come forward, receive a little bit of bread, dunk it in the cup. 
And you can either take it on the way back to your seat, or if you're with your family or your friends, you can take it together in your row. Brothers and sisters, everything that God created is good. And these are the gifts of God. And they are given for the people of God. Come forward and receive communion.